Good morning and welcome to Stories in Public Health. I'm your host, Emily Dieter, and this morning I am with Professor Catherine Lumby, who works at Macquarie University in the Department of Media, Music, Communication and Cultural Studies. She's an author and journalist by trade, and she transitioned um, into academia in 2000. And I first came across Catherine a few weeks back when she gave a seminar on social, um, the use of social media in academia, and I thought she was brilliant, so I reached out and asked if she would be happy to do a podcast interview. Thank you so much for joining us, Catherine. It's a pleasure, Emily. So you've had a little bit of a not straight line career. It's probably the technical term for yes, it. Yes, it is. Um, so could you maybe talk us through how, why journalism and then how you um, came to transition into academia? Sure. So I started out, I did an arts law degree at Sydney University and I did my honours in fine arts um, and began writing as a contemporary art critic. And then when I finished my law degree, I went and took a close look at what a big law firm is and looks like up up close and um, I was horrified <laughs> quite <laughs> frankly I, I think two things one is the idea of being stuck in an office sort of seven in the morning till seven at night horrified mm. me and secondly I guess being a social justice oriented person uh, I didn't want to spend my days saving large corporations from legal embarrassment so I sort of hid under my doona for about six months and then I, when I emerged, I started writing freelance for the Sydney Morning Herald and just, I think, out of sheer persistence, worked my way onto the Herald and worked there. And then I tried my hand at television for the ABC. I was a news reporter. And then I uh, applied for something called a Harkness Fellowship. And one of the things I would encourage your listeners to do is to keep an eye on fellowships, okay. uh, particularly when you finish your PhD these days not just postdoctoral fellowships, but things like the Fulbright, the Harkness Fellowship, a lot of people don't know about that, but basically you get paid to go and spend two years in America. Oh, that sounds cool. Um, and I, I did that. Um, it's normally focused on public health, actually, so it's probably right in the ballpark of a lot of your I'll listeners. I'll be Googling as soon as I walk away from <laughs> <laughs> And so, um, of course, I extended the two years into five years. I freelanced well yeah. after my fellowship ran out and I wrote my first book in New York Bad Girls and then I uh, enrolled in a PhD in, a, in at Macquarie University uh, finished that and so that was kind of I guess really about 15 years of my career was as a journalist uh, then I segued slowly back into the academic track and uh, I was in in the right place at the right time I've got to really fess up to that because Sometimes, as Paul Keating said of John Howard, you get hit up the ass by a rainbow. <laughs> That's what <laughs> happened. Sydney University wanted to set up its media and communications degree. And because I had a lot of journalistic experience, but I also had a PhD and I'd published two books, I was well positioned to apply for the job of setting that up. So I, I was hired to do that. And so I got to set a degree up from scratch, which was an incredible pleasure. And what was your PhD in that led to sort sure. of making you well placed for that? Well, my PhD was, it's published as a book called Gotcha Life in a Tabloid World. It was published in 1999. And essentially I was looking at the rise of things like celebrity and reality television and the tabloidization of news and current affairs. And I thought that we'd reached the limit point in 1999. <laughs> I thought, things can go no further. You had no idea the Kardashians were coming. <laughs> I had no idea the Kardashians were coming. But, um, but in that, I'm not simply saying all of that's terrible. One of the things I was arguing as a feminist is that 
Um, that kind of trend in media has brought the private sphere into public life and that a lot of issues that were formerly kind of sequestered in the private sphere like the body, sexuality, relationships, child rearing, all of these mm. things, these practices were seen as women's work or the business of women mm. um, and that one of the things the tabloidization of media did and the rise of reality TV and talk shows was to bring ordinary voices into the public sphere which horrified uh, a, you know sort of elitist white men no mm. offense to your white listeners. <laughs> I'm sure you're a fabulous people but um, so there was this kind of you know sneering about all of that and I think this I was interested in the sneering and the fact that there are reasons that people are obsessed with celebrities mm. uh, often because they're interested in their failings and they're interested in not just the fact that they're famous but that everybody's human and and what does it mean to be human I think there's a sort of deeper interest behind all the superficiality of the celebrity culture that we live in and of course what's happened is social media has taken this to the nth degree mm. so what I thought was a limit point really wasn't at all and who knows where all this is going because I always go back as a touchstone to Andy Warhol who said once in the 60s in the future everybody will be famous for 15 minutes and I think we're now living in Warhol's world, right? I didn't know he said that. That was very insightful. He was very prescient. He's a fascinating artist, actually, and very underestimated because people think he's just all on the surface. Yeah. But he actually understood the depth of superficial culture, is how I'd put it. So uh, I think one of the takeouts for you listeners, because I'm conscious of their needs, not just telling my story, is that in my journey I wasn't because I came out of journalism, I wasn't afraid to write books which are called crossover books or trade books. So my first book, Bad Girls, which was really looking at uh, feminist debates around representations of women and sexuality and pornography and those things, I published it with Alan and Unwin and I wrote it in a very accessible style, but it was research-based. And the same with my PhD thesis, I published it uh, intentionally for a broader readership and I think these days that we're moving away from an era where academics just sort of sit in an ivory tower or in a sequestered space towards a space where there's a lot of demand for impact and accessibility. So if that's the sort of thing you enjoy doing, not everyone does, mm -hmm. but if you do, then, then that, don't be shy of that because by publishing in that way and getting a broader audience, I was able early on in my career to show impact and that's actually served me well in the academic sphere as well as more generally I think in the public sphere where I do a lot of I guess public facing work um, and, and so not all academics want to do that kind of stuff but if that's what you're interested in as an ECR or, or an HDR student, a PhD student, it's probably a great idea to get a mentor who's good at that stuff to assist you to help you network and to be on the other end of the phone when you're writing an opinion piece or you're you're thinking about doing radio or you're or or you're just writing a book i mean we still have to write traditional academic things like journal articles mm -hmm. which don't tell your supervisor i said this <laughs> <laughs> which bore the pants off me <laughs> because they're very traditional sort of outputs that's still a requirement but it doesn't mean we can't have a bit of fun on the side and a bit of fun with writing. And that was one of the things I wanted to touch on. It was in terms of sort of tips for writing. You sort of talk about 
writing in this sort of more accessible way and you've written books and you sort of talk about it like it was really easy is it something that came really naturally to you or is it something you've had to really work at because it's a really different skill set to I think what we learn through a PhD you're Emily you're so right and I think one of the the things for me was look I had the advantage of having been a journalist for 15 years and when you're a journalist you have to write very quickly you know when you're in a newsroom say in the general news pool you might have to write 1500 words a day between 10, 10 in the morning and 4 in the afternoon. So you can't be precious. That sounds stressful. <laughs> yeah, it is. It, well, I loved it. it. I mean, I get off on that stuff. It's very adrenaline-focused kind of activity. <laughs> um, and you, and um, it challenges you in all sorts of ways. But it is very good for honing your style and working the fat off your style. And I think one of the issues in academic writing, which I find frustrating, I think challenging, is that, you know, often the preferred academic style is written in the passive voice. So if you think about the active and the passive voice, I mean, if I say to you, the dog ran to the door, you know, instantly you've got a picture in your mind. If I say the door was run to by the dog, you have to flip it and think about it. So that passive voice, which is a big no-no in journalism, is something that crops up in academic speak. A lot of academic speak is very focused on specialist language. Now, we need specialist terminology, of course, but you can break it down more, is my view. Mm. Some people would be quite sniffy about some of the stuff I write, and that's okay because I think you, there are many kinds of academics and, you know, it takes all sorts, really, but I think it's important to recognise that increasingly research funding is oriented towards work that has demonstrable public impact and industry impact and those sorts of impacts and and that means being able to break down your language and I think science communication is a fascinating area for that reason. I worked on a big science communication project when I was at UNSW running a research centre there and I was working with chemical engineers. I knew nothing about chemical engineering and I still know very little. Um, and they were working on water, water recycling plants uh, and they, were, they came to me to team up with them because they wanted to understand how to communicate to the public that water recycling is safe, it's environmentally the, most, the soundest way to go about dealing with the scarcity of water and it's economically the most efficient way. And their approach had been, if we can just give people more scientific facts, then they'll come around and understand. And what I said to them is, that's not how people work. If we understand communication, it's about appealing to people's values and and understanding that a lot of what people respond to is visceral. And that's something, say, Donald Trump understands, Mm -hmm. because the rest of us are sort of sitting back going, what? Mm. But um, he's very good at that form of communication. And I think for scientists, it's very puzzling that people increasingly appear not to trust the scientific method. So I think there's a challenge there for people doing good science. And that challenge is how do you communicate effectively to the public? And part of that is about writing or speaking in ways that pe- that breaks it down for people and that they trust. Because we're living in an era where we don't trust experts as much as we yeah. used to. 
Yeah, I think it's a really good point. And it's definitely a theme that's been coming up throughout the interviews. Mm. It's an interesting point about Trump. I hadn't thought about it from that perspective. I've just been sitting back baffled. <laughs> don't, don't think about Trump, please. Not before midday anyway. <laughs> uh, so now I, we might touch on um, some of your uh, current research. So you've done some work in um, sort of young people, adolescent um, health space. Yes. Um, would you mind talking us through some of that? Love to. So I... A couple of years ago, I did. Um, it was a, an Australian Research Council discovery grant that, that I led, and I did focus groups with 13 to 17 year olds in Australian high schools. And the focus was talking to them about love, sex, relationships, and how the media, by which I largely mean social media, intersected with the way they formed their own personal and sexual identities and how they related to others. Um, and there's so much I could tell you, but to, to keep it short, what was fascinating was that they, they were very clear, pretty much everyone in the, in the study was very clear that in sex education, they learnt the same thing in year seven, year nine, um, they'd learnt some of it in primary school, which was all focused on biology and plumbing and mm. how to put a condom on a banana and <laughs> what the protein coating on the AIDS virus is. And mm. But when I asked them what they wanted to know, they all talked about communication and they felt that they weren't well supported when it came to understanding what they wanted and what someone else wanted. And I think the question of consent is critical. Consent is obviously a legal issue you know, and and there's a bit of ignorance out there about what consent is. You know, when you tell people, even grown-ups, that someone can't consent to a sexual activity if they are off their face, people sort of say things like, or young people often say, "But that's how I do have sex. I get pissed." <laughs> you know, and that's the reality. Yeah, so, kind of getting space. people to sort of understand the legal frameworks, but most importantly, to me, the ethical frameworks. So what does care for self and care for others look like in those situations? Because a lot of sex is negotiated non-verbally. So there's some real complexities there. And then with social media, of course, that amplifies things. Because if you look at young teenagers, um, when I say young, say the older group of teenagers, you know, a very high percentage are sending sexually suggestive or explicit images to each other. It's just part of flirting and, and yeah. so on. But they sometimes get shared non-consensually. Yeah. There, there can be real ripple effects. And I think one of the other things that was very apparent was, and boys and girls in the study both said this, is that the gender, the double gender standard around sexuality is still alive and kicking, unfortunately, so that it's expected that boys go um, out looking for sex. If girls cross the line between being attractive into being sexually adventurous or sexually flirtatious, then they get called that horrible yeah. word, a slut. And that word still exists, which horrified me. So, um, but the good news is that young people are aware that that double standard sucks. And they're also aware that in a way, and I remember one of them said, look, it's really been left to our generation to work out the rules with social media because so true. all my parents do is sit around and panic about it. So I think we need to be supporting our young people more, but we also need to do a lot of listening to them because actually they're at the coalface and they can tell us a lot about 
where the challenges and problems are with social media use and forming relationships. Yeah, I think that's so true. As we were talking, all I could think to myself was, I'm so glad that when I was younger, mobile phones like weren't, <laughs> like, weren't invented yet. They were very early. Like I didn't have a mobile phone until after university. So I can't yeah. imagine what they're going through. Like It's just a whole new world. It's it a really, really important space to be and looking it, to. And it amplifies things. I mean, I think about, you know, at one point I was at boarding school with my girlfriends and we got bored on weekends because we're locked in a boarding house. And um, so we, what, what would we do at the age of 14 and 15? We'd put on the fanciest underwear we had, put on tons of makeup and strike sexy poses and take Polaroids of ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> now, that's as far as it went. I've still got some of those photos. So when people say to me, oh, young women today, shock, horror, pornography's turned them all into sex objects. Well, we were desperately trying to be sex objects. <laughs> it's just that no one could see. So, I mean, uh, it's inevitable that young people are going to want to experiment with sexuality. There's nothing wrong with that, but they need to be able to do it safely and without being shamed. Ah, social media, some good bits to it and some bad bits. Yeah, and I think the main thing is that, you know, we shouldn't be panicking. We should be doing a lot of listening, and that's kind of what this research project was about. I was a bit nervous at first because, you know, I'm going to rooms with... 16-year-old boys sitting around a table thinking, God, I'm, I'm probably older than their mothers, or I probably look older than their mothers. And, um, you know, they'll just be going, who's this old lady here? And they, I couldn't shut them up. Really? They weren't shy about getting involved in the No, they wanted to talk, and they were really... What was very clear was they kept saying again and again, no one listens to us. Thank you for listening. Yeah, they were... I mean, they were very funny too. I remember this one young woman because I started out by asking them about various forms of media and I asked them about traditional media like radio, TV, print, you know. I quickly realised that was irrelevant. But <laughs> but I remember one 14-year-old girl, she said, radio, radio. She said, oh, you mean that thing in the car that old people who have to work listen to? Oh, no, they don't know radio anymore. <laughs> So that's what a mother listened to, obviously, in the car. <laughs> Old people who have to work. It's oh, God, terrible. I still remember. Sorry, I'm just going to take a real quick trip down memory lane. I remember that we didn't have, yeah. like, iPods and everything, and you'd have to, like, listen to the radio and make a mixtape, and if your favourite song came when you had to really quickly press record and then stop at the end, and then sometimes the DJ would come in at the end and, like, cut off the song. It was really devastating. Dear listeners, <laughs> she, she, she's, uh, Emily looks about 18. <laughs> Emily is not 18. So I might just take um, different tech now, still on social media, but um, the thing that first brought you to my attention was um, the tips you gave for academics uh-huh. in, in the social media space. I was wondering if you could maybe talk to us about, yeah, how to navigate it as academics. It can feel quite overwhelming. It is overwhelming, and I do have some tips. The f- number one tip I've got is talk to your librarian, a good research librarian because there's something called altmetrics now Mm. where they will be tracking your social media traction and increasingly, and this will ramp up every year, the ability to demonstrate impact if you say applying for a postdoctoral fellowship, if you're applying for promotion, any of these things, altmetrics is a good way to demonstrate impact Um, and, and a good research librarian will show you how to identify yourself on social media uh, and that's important and to track it. The second thing I'd say is choose your platforms wisely. Almost certainly Twitter is going to be high on the radar for you because it's a platform where people are thinking, 
where you can attract a like-minded community. I wouldn't ignore Facebook, though there are interesting questions being raised about Facebook mm. as we do this podcast. But, you know, the platforms may change. But I, I think, you know, in the current era, Twitter's critical. What you've got to then think about is who is your audience? That's really important. One of the ways to build an audience is to follow people or organisations which are in your space because social media works off synergies. You know, you gain by sharing. Mm-hmm. Share other people's things and then you'll be on their radar and they're more likely to follow you. That's number one because you want to create a kind of audience and a community. The second thing is it's not about quantity of engagement as much as quality of engagement. So when you think about your audience, what, what do you think they want from you? Is it information? Is it pointing them to links? It might be both of those things. Is it a bit of entertainment? Like, look at this, this is hilarious. You know, if you're allowed to be a little bit entertaining, amusing, surprising, all of those are things that we naturally gravitate towards. Uh, but if you're tweeting with your professional hat on, obviously you've got to be careful about how far you stretch those boundaries. Mm. And don't, don't sort of mix your personal too much with your professional. So you might want to have a private Twitter account and your professional Twitter account. That's something a lot of people do. I mean, in my case, I guess, because I've been around, you know, in since the dinosaurs, really. Um, That's not true. <laughs> <laughs> I've, already, I've already got a sort of public persona, which is a bit irreverent. So that's what people expect from me. So I'm kind of fortunate that I can... Well, I can't hide from things I've said in public in the past or tongue-in-cheek things. Mm. So I can get away with that. But if you're looking for promotion, if you're looking for postdoctoral fellowships, everything's so competitive these days, you do have to think carefully about curating what it is you're going to say to your audience. And I guess promoting, I hate the word brand, but it is a brand, promoting your persona or your brand in ways that fit with your research and and your trajectory and where you want to go. It's a great way to network, and it and it's very you know. But you've got to treat it as a communal space, obviously. Yeah, yeah. I think that's something I'm still really struggling with is this persona and how it fits in with my research. I think it's something a lot of early career researchers might struggle with. So it might just be a bit of trial and error at the beginning. I think it's trial and error, but I also think you know, younger researchers are better placed to do it. I mean, one of the things I did. Some a couple of years back at Macquarie University, where I'm based now, was to look at academic attitudes to social media. Really? Yeah. That sounds it fascinating. Was kind of hilarious because we had an open-ended question, and it was just one long whinge from about two thirds of the people <laughs> I surveyed. Going, you know, it was all like young people today. They're just on their laptops and they don't listen to me. And you know, and my takeout from that is, well, if people aren't listening and they're not engaging, then you have to question. Why? And I, my, I, my questions would start with myself, not with the young people at yeah. their laptops, right? And so quite, quite a lot of senior academics, I think, find social media very threatening, partly because it breaks down the walls of knowledge and the distribution of information and knowledge so that the gatekeeping systems have broken down. And I think that's a great thing. I love it. I think it's uh, very challenging for people who thought they'd climbed their way to the top of the greasy pole and they could sit there comfortably because now anyone can question yeah. you and challenge you. But then I think that that's what 
being a good critical thinker and an academic should be about, that you're open to anyone challenging your ideas and that you're happy to have a respectful dialogue. Uh, and social media really makes things far more porous when it comes to debate. Yeah. And I think that's wonderful. Can I ask a quick question before we, we just move on? I'm just conscious of time. How do you deal with any negative sort of comments or feedback about, <laughs> you know, being so public? It is, you know, how do you cope with that? Yeah, well, you don't feed the trolls, particularly yeah. after two glasses of wine. <laughs> <laughs> In fact, never feed the trolls. Um, you just block people. Yeah. That, that's certainly my approach. If someone wants to engage respectfully, then I will engage with them. And if you're on social media, you need to be prepared to engage. But you need to have your radar up about when someone's trolling you. There's, it's pointless to get into angry debates. Mm. But then I don't think any of the listeners will be those kind of people. I don't think so either. You know, so I guess know that you're not alone when it happens. Yeah. Um, uh, again, I'm not saying it doesn't happen to men, but particularly for young women, if you stick your head above the parapet, um, you know, you're going to get those guys who... Um, want to tell you two things. One is you're fat and second that they want to have sex with you non-consensually. Mm. And um, there's always a donkey, donkey involved for some reason. <laughs> I, sorry, I, just, I have to joke about it. I have to have a black sense of humour. Yeah. But the thing is, it is, I mean, to be serious, it's, it's awful. And I think if you're um, sort of a junior re- researcher, it inc- can be incredibly disturbing. So again, I encourage all younger researchers to find yourself a mentor you trust, someone that you can unload to and just call any time and just say, this happened, I'm freaking out. Mm. In the same way that if you get those snarky, stupid readers' reports, yeah, you know, you need someone to download to. You don't want to just sit at home sort of fretting mm. on them. And I think that's another thing that's come through is that the mentoring, a few people have said that that's really important. So I think Find that's... someone who's a nice, you know, decent person you click with that you trust and a good mentor will be there for you and they won't sort of say, well, we'll meet once every two months at this appointed time. Yeah. A good mentor is someone who's on the other end of the phone when mm. you need them. Wow, okay, that's really good advice. Thank you. So I might just finish the last two questions that I usually ask. So the last one is, uh, second to last one, is do you have any sort of major lessons learned, especially in the academic space, yeah. things that you sort of look back and go, I did this right or I wish I'd done this differently? Yeah, so... You know, everything I know I learned from making mistakes, from screwing up, okay? So I guess the first thing I've learned is be really open to mistakes and don't beat yourself up. Think back and think, what could I learn from this and how can I move forward? I think secondly, I suppose I was a senior manager for 12 years and I didn't manage my time terribly well. I'm a fairly low boundaries person anyway and... I think if you're a young researcher, guard your time, be very clear about your three to five year plan. You really need to do that. Mm. But at the same time, you know, let's say you've already got a job, don't turn down opportunities for service, but be judicious or careful about what you take on. Mm. So, so look at your time management because you can, like I did, you can end up with 50 things on your plate and then you'll do them all in a kind of half-assed way. Mm, yeah, I've certainly been guilty of that in the past. I'm trying to work. Like a lot of us are. And you kind of have to be because we're in this world where we're so busy mm. and, and so many... I mean, look, when opportunities come to you, again, a mentor's great. 
sit down with someone you trust and say, I've got these five opportunities. I think I can execute three of them well. How do I prioritize them? Mm. So prioritizing is really a critical thing. My mentor talks about um, like the tennis ball, the see-through tennis ball um, Mm -hmm. containers. And she said for everything that every new opportunity you get, you have to think of like one tennis ball coming out the other end because there's only a limited amount that fits in. That's a great way to do it. Yeah, I think about it all the time. Yeah. Excellent. And just to finish off, do you have a favorite book or something that's really inspired you or changed the way you've thought about the world? It's my favorite question. Yeah. <laughs> no, well, there's, I, you, you sort of prepped me for that and I, I thought about a few things. One, one would be Alice in Wonderland. I love the way it, it challenges all preconceived ideas of power and authority. You know, Alice falls down the rabbit hole yeah. and everything's different. And I think a lot of the time when we're living uh, and working, we are kind of through a looking glass. The other answer to that is when I was 15, living in a working-class beach culture, I read Frank Morehouse, who I'm writing a biography of at the moment, and it was about sort of Bohemia in the 70s in Sydney. I was living in Newcastle, and I read this book, and um, I thought, oh, my God, there's a way out. There's somewhere else. And I thought, I remember thinking, when I grow up, I want to be Frank Morehouse. When instead I'm writing his biography. It's, I think that's still a good thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, yeah, I did know you were writing that biography. So when you said it, I was like, oh, that makes sense now. I can see why you've sort of chosen that path. Well, thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. I think this is really a space that a lot of us in academia are a bit um, confused and overwhelmed by. So I think these conversations can really help. And look, it's a pleasure, Emily. And I just want to say to your listeners, good luck in all your endeavours and you know, get in touch if there's anything I can help with. Excellent. Thank you so much. And thank you everyone for listening.